Hi, it's Ori Krug and welcome back to Mind Your Body. Oh my gosh, it has been so long since we've been here. Like several months, I think. So I have been doing so much. I got overbooked in my business, which is great. Like doing so much amazing transformational work with my clients um, in my sessions. And um, a lot of stuff behind the scenes. I've built an amazing new training called Wired for Love. Um, you can see that at wiredforlovetherapy.com. And really just figuring out this whole like work-life balance thing. You know, you think you got to figure it out after almost 10 years of being a dance therapist, but um, I'm in new territory here with running my own business. So um, thanks for your patience. I didn't forget about you. I've got several interviews um, that I still need to publish. And the one today with Martha Eddy is literally from April. So that's six months ago. So I'm just catching up here. And meanwhile, um, I've been getting a lot of emails from you about supervision and can we do supervision together? And I've had to say no a lot because it's not a service that I focus on primarily in my business, but I wanted to offer something. So I have a special offer today is a one-on-one 90-day supervision intensive. So it's an immersive intensive experience where you will, we will co-create your personal and professional transformation to up-level your confidence, your skills, your intervention toolbox, and your financial return as a creative arts therapist. And Uh, something similar. So if you're a dance therapist, if you're a body-based psychotherapist, we can work together as well. And because this isn't a regular service that I offer my business, I'm only opening this up once a year and the time is now. So um, there's three spots available and there's already seven people interested as I posted this on my Facebook page earlier today. And the spots are gonna go quickly and this is not gonna open up again until late 2021. Sorry, 2020. This isn't gonna open up until late 2020. So if you are interested, I encourage you to pause this right now, go to the podcast show notes and click on the link to book a call to see if we're a good fit to work together and make magic happen together. And um, until then, let's, let's jump into today's episode. So again, I interviewed Martha Eddy about somatics and race. And I got to be honest, I hadn't looked at this interview again until now, six months later. And she provides such amazing foundational information about somatics and psychosomatics and race and I, I got to admit that, like, I asked her at the end of this episode, what can I do? What can we do? Especially as a social media influencer, how can we bring more awareness to this? And I completely, I completely forgot about this interview. And I know I came on here saying I'm busy, like I've been busy, I've been so caught up and like all this stuff. But I'm going to call myself out here because I don't think I'm alone in this. But the busyness, yes, it's real. But I think it's kind of a 
defense mechanism or resistance to really diving deeper into, into the stuff that I really know I have to look deeper into about being white and being privileged and even doing little things like changing the way I speak to people, having a more inclusive language. And I'm not going to continue spoiling the rest of the episode, but, but doing more stop making the excuse that I'm busy or too busy to look into this and deal with um, the resistance that comes around exploring, um, exploring this topic a little bit more deeply in myself and in my body. So I'm saying this because, well, I'm just going to own up to it. And also because I'm going to ask you to do the same, I'm going to challenge you to do the same. So without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. This is Mind Your Body, a dance movement therapy perspective on the integration of our emotional, cognitive, physical, and spiritual aspects of our being into one more aware and whole existence. Welcome, Martha, to Mind Your Body. So good to have you here. I would love if you could introduce yourself to our listeners. Great. Well, thank you for having me. I'm Martha Eddy, and... I am a somatic movement therapist, also termed as a somatic movement educator. I'm right here in Manhattan, New York City, and I uh, run a few different programs, three certification programs. One is called Dynamic Embodiment. Another one is called Body Mind Dancing. And the third is called Moving for Life. So I'm happy to talk about those a little bit at some point. Awesome, thank you. Um, before we continue, can you distinguish what's the difference between a dance th- dance therapist and a somatic therapist? Do you call yourself somatic therapist or somatic movement therapist? Both exist, so I guess I'll talk about the difference between all three okay. because they are different. Yeah, cool. So um, that is a question that people ask me all the time. I've been um, very involved in academics for 40 years. I was actually first hired to teach in a, uh, in a university as a faculty member of the dance movement therapy students at NYU. And so for four years, I taught two levels of what was then called effort shape, which is the underpinning of um, the more attitudinal emotional work of Laban movement analysis. And obviously, I quickly expanded it to the full system of Laban movement analysis, um, which I've been teaching for years, both in the Laban certification programs, as well as um, at universities. And then more recently, as a theoretical basis for dynamic embodiment, which is my somatic movement therapy training. So what's somatic movement therapy? It's really um, about teaching people to perceive their bodies. So somatics is the whole field of both recognizing that we can sense our bodies kinesthetically, but then teaching people how to do that if, for instance, they have no sensation, they've got a very dampened proprioceptive system, and or they are in pain, like too much sensation, but need a little more understanding of how to control it. So it's very physiological or physically based. um, And it has a holistic component, very much centered in how people perceive themselves, which is 
obviously impacted by how they live their lives. So uh, what you do, how you act, how you, um, what you feel and what you think about your feelings, which is perception, uh, all are part of the field of somatics. However, we're not working or trained to work necessarily with people with mental health diagnoses. So we're not trained in the DSM, whether it's one, two, three, four, you know, et cetera. We're working with people that are generally healthy mentally, but have physical questions, whether it's ailments, could or could, might not be. Some people come to us for performance enhancement, wanting to do a better pirouette or wanting to walk with confidence. So there's a lot of overlap with dance movement therapy, but it's definitely a distinct field with distinct kind of training. Mm -hmm. Anything when I say that, that kind of resonates for you is, is distinct? Oh, um, well, we specifically do train in the DSM diagnoses and mental, mental health and developmental psychology and, and all that. I mean, all the, all the schools have different approaches, but that is specifically what we train in. So I, I hear a distinction there. Yeah. yeah. So the people that are doing dance movement therapy that go more into the medical field and are working with people with medical issues really are the, the dance movement therapists that are most similar to somatic movement therapists. And um, one of the things that I feel very strongly about the advantage of somatic movement therapy is that we spend a lot of time with hands-on touch work. So the major skills are certainly movement, but there's also sounding and touch. And there's some sound work, I'm sure, in dance movement therapy, but there's actually a very systematic, often, depending on which brand, again, of somatic movement work you do, um, systematic understanding of vocalization and resonance in the body and how it impacts health of the tissue. So, you know, it's physiological again. It's really understanding how to move people into well-being, uh, but usually people that uh, are not diagnosed. Although I have to say over the years, people have come into my office that have uh, certainly mental health issues, and I just make sure they're also seeing um, some kind of psychotherapist, whether it's a dance movement psychotherapist, a somatic therapist, a somatic psychologist, or a body-centered therapist. Um, those are all great too. And I've collaborated with clients or pa patients. We don't really use the term patient. We use the term client. Uh, client's permission sometimes collaborated with their um, therapist therapist as well. The other thing that's um, kind of unusual uh, about the registration or certification as a somatic movement therapist is that you can also choose to be registered as a somatic movement educator. So that basically reveals the principle that all somatic work is educational. So we are often stopping a flow of transference or counter-transference to say, hey, look what's happening right now. And let's get back to you learning what you need to learn without over-identifying with me as the parent. So we actually do get training and give our, I train my, my 
practitioners at least to recognize the signals of transference and countertransference. And the reason we have to do it so much is that our work is also developmentally based in that we teach neuromotor development and how babies are conceived and then how they're born and how the birth process affects their physical being as well as their sense of wellness and well-being. So there's another place where we have a lot of overlap with dance movement therapists and can be really fun to work with dance movement therapists. And again, our skills will be what is the hands-on process of rebirthing? What's the hands-on process of helping a child with an imbalanced crawl? Those kinds of things. Mm. So I've actually co-taught with Susie Tortura over the years um, in order to bring those strengths together. Great, that's super helpful to hear the distinction. Thank you. Welcome. Um, today we have agreed to talk about somatics and race. So can you tell us like a little bit more of an introduction and why you chose, you know, why that's a topic that you want to talk about? Sure. Um, I'm now known as the author of Mindful Movement, The Evolution of the Somatic Arts and Conscious Action. So that's like this book here. And um, how did I even get to writing this book? Well, similar to that experience of so many people saying, well, what's dance movement therapy and what's somatic movement therapy? Because again, I did continue to teach in other dance movement therapy programs, notably um, up at Antioch with Susan Lohman. Uh, for another four years. So I've been in and out of the dance movement therapy community as well as the somatic community and actually began studies as a dance movement therapist with the alternative track. And sadly, um, Barbara Harrison, who was going to be my mentor, died of breast cancer. And uh, I at that point said, what is this about? I guess I should really invest in the somatic work. And so that was in the 90s. And then somewhere in giving talks about somatics, I just was very aware that the antecedents of the work were coming from the East a lot, so from Asia, and began to note that, for instance, Irmgard Bartenev, who was my teacher, I studied with her and co-taught with her um, before her death, um, was regularly involved with Qigong, or Qigong as they say now, but she would go to Hawaii in uh, the winters to get away from the cold of New York, and she's had a great teacher there that she really loved. And then I read that Moshe Feldenkrais was one of the first, or maybe the first person, to get a judo black belt in Europe. And so those two facts kind of scintillated me, and it was like, Oh, and then I was reading, I think, Don, um, Don Hanlon Johnson's books about various of the early somatic pioneers and came upon this idea that um, Ida Rolf really loved yoga. Um, and then uh, similarly, there was one more, uh, now I'm thinking of Marian Rosen, but that's a little different. I mean, a lot were doing breath techniques that may have been influenced by yoga coming from India, back to Britain. There was a lot of exchange there and then into Germany. Um, but, uh, oh yes, in uh, FM Alexander, the Alexander Technique, he, his 
his niece just talked about how he was like the most spiritual person she had ever met. And then I wanted to know more about him and I learned that he had lived in Australia and then um, Tasmania. And I just wondered if some of the influences of whether it was the landscape itself or the culture influenced some of his thinking and ideas as an actor. And then as an actor who learned to self-heal or self-regulate, um, which is another very important um, premise of the somatic work is that when you can feel your own body, that you basically, we as somatic movement therapists are not really healing people. We're basically helping them heal themselves. We're helping them feel their own bodies and find the place of aliotosis, which is like homostasis, coming into self-regulation in a way that their body can get back, each of our bodies can get back to um, finding its way home, if you will, kind of um, experiencing health. So with that, I wrote an article in, that was published, I believe in 2002 by Dance Research Journal. And it was about the global influences on somatics. And one could wonder, you know, why was I even interested? I mean, it's, you know, it's fascinating, but I, I've had a long-standing just desire to make sure that we credit sources. Um, partially, let's see, this was the 90s. In the 80s, I was already teaching the body-mind centering work, which is the work of Bonnie Bainbridge-Cohen and has the this neurodevelopmental uh component very strongly right now her real passion is even embryology and how that impacts all forms of behavior and development um, and so with with that work i would take it to the laban community and i spent a lot of time reframing the bmc work so that it was a nice fit with bartenia fundamentals which is part of the laban training so i didn't say that before but ermgard barteniev was the person who came from Nazi Germany, escaping Nazi Germany, having trained with Rudolf Laban there, and then came to New York in 1936, couldn't get a job as a dancer, so became a dance therapist, excuse me, became a physical therapist. And then when she was on some of the wards running groups in, in physical therapy, it was actually a psychologist that came over to her and said, would you work with our mentally ill patients in our other ward? And so she's one of the mothers of dance movement therapy. So clearly, just me personally, there's a couple of things I want to say there. One is, thank you, Ermgard, for bringing the Laban work to this country. And then her own experience of being such a uh, an incredible Renaissance woman of really being a dancer and then being a... Um, physical therapist and then being a dance movement therapist and then a dance ethnographer and then also the founder and creator of the curriculum that teaches Laban movement analysis that has impacted the entire world now because no one had really systematized the teaching of it. Um, and then finally, in, uh, she also became an author as well. So she has a book called Body Movement, Coping with the Environment. So in teaching at the Laban Institute, we were teaching Ermgard's Barteniev work, which was as a physical therapist, influenced by the whole idea of neuromotor development. And a lot of her, what we call body connectivity 
had been organized in terms of a developmental sequence. So recognizing uh, that we had a head-tail connection that seemed to be more important first than the limb work of upper and lower body or right-left limb or cross-lateral, what she called diagonal connection. So I would take the BMC work, the body-mind centering work, and bring it into um, the Laban community. And that work was <clears throat> using more technical language. So we talked about breath as being really important. And, we were, and then I would say, wait, Irmgard worked with breath. Then we would talk about the umbilical connection of the baby to the mother and organizing movement around the navel. So we called that navel radiation. And then we had spinal movement, and then we had upper lower, and we had right left, and we had uh, contralateral was the word we used. So the upper lower we called homologous, and the right left homolateral, so again, more technical. So I would reframe the language, I would present them as co-equal, I would say, yes, Irmgard actually did look at breath, but in these ways versus these ways. And I also talked about how, um, uh, the navel radiation was not something we talked about in BMC. I mean, we, a BMC concept that we did not talk about in the Bartania, but Irmgard had this quintessential exercise from the big X where you curl up into a little fetal position and then expand out with many, many variations on that. And I saw that as the same process of gathering around the navel and then expanding out. So when I taught that to Peggy Hackney's class in Seattle, the Laban certification there, she said, hmm, you know, she's a Laban rotator, she's a motifer. She said, we need a, a symbol for that. We need a word for that. So she and I thought, let's be systematic. We have head tail, we have upper lower, we have body half. Let's have core distal. So we took this concept of BMC that I had brought to the Laban community of naval radiation and gave it more Bartenev language, which is core distal connectivity. One of the things that happened after that is that that work has just taken off, in particular in Peggy Hackney's book called Making Connections. And in that book, I feel she just basically teaches the BMC work as if it is Bartenev fundamentals. And so that was a, um, to me, a, a little bit of a, a travesty, actually. You know, it's like, wait a minute, Ermgard's work is Ermgard's work, and Bonnie's work is Bonnie's work. And it kind of irked me. So I've written an article on that. It's free. I can get it out. It's on my websites. Um, and it's basically comparing these two developmental strands. Um, quote, setting the record straight from my perspective of someone who's taught in both certifications for over 10 years and really devoted to each as worthy of celebration and um, worthy of their legacies being understood. And from that, I think I had a similar feeling as I was, you know, oh, Ermgard also studied Qigong. Oh, Feldenkrais also did work with um, Judo Master. And then I found out that Emily Conrad, who's in the second generation, had studied her work had a basis in Afro-Haitian dance. Her work is called Continuum. And the work of Continuum is about this fluidity and this kind of trance-like state where you are 
finding your fluid body and your muscles don't really matter anymore. And actually she's done miracles. We know they're not miracles anymore, but uh, helping people with deep rigidities and, and, and um, spasticities relieve them through this work that had its early genesis in the Afro-Haitian dance community. So I wanted to expose that. And I also knew my teacher, Bonnie Bamish Cohen, had spent years in Japan. She's known for, in the somatic movement field, also going into the autonomic nervous system. So many of the others are really about neuromuscular release and relaxation. Oh, some hate the word relaxation. So activation, uh, finding kind of calmness out of which to find your awareness and move out. Um, but not really getting into the organs, the glands, the fluids. And Bonnie Bamish Cohen was working with those. And I have to say in my early years of teaching where people were like, what do you mean you can move from your organs? What do you mean your fluids um, can be a baseline for your movement? Now it's not seeming so far out there, but you can imagine 30, 40 years ago, people were like, You're, you gotta be kidding. So I wanted to find out more about that. And it turns out she had studied Katsen Gunundo when she was living in Japan. So here we go again, another resource from another culture that needed to be uplifted. Now, meanwhile, here I am um, with my own history, my own uh, legacy, if you will, which is that I'm the daughter of two social activists that grew, that chose to work before they married even in East Harlem, which is also known as El Barrio or Spanish Harlem. So I was born the third child into a family of white people in, by the time I was born, by the time I was five or six, really the only white people on the block. They, there were, had been a handful of white families still in a black and Puerto Rican neighborhood. So that sensitivity is always in my background as well. So between this interest in legacy in general and giving credit where credit's due and my own sensitivity to just being an outsider inside and out. Um, I've just been hyper alert around issues of race. And, you know, as much as I'm very distraught with the politics of the last three to four years, which are based in the politics of the last 150 years uh, and longer, um, I am glad that they're bringing up to the surface what I call the underbelly of America, this just horrible racism that exists in our culture and that has you know, been enacted in the cruelty of, of a type of slavery that was unknown anywhere else on the planet where people were slaves for life and for generations. And then um, also just this incredible um, way that, and I remember saying it, I don't know, I think I was trying to think about my own parents' work. And I said, I think I learned from my parents, and this was years ago, that poverty is just another form of slavery. And when we look at mass incarceration and the statistics are obviously around um, African-American males being the most incarcerated or, and certainly for uh, crimes not committed or petty crimes, um, 
that is a kind of enforced poverty. So you've got this, what I remember, I, I don't know if it was a Mother Jones journal or another, maybe the Atlantic or something like that, but it said captured labor. And that was a good 25 years ago that people had revealed that you're, you know, imprisoning people and then getting them to work for 50 cents an hour. And there are lots of corporations that are basically benefiting from that. So these are the kinds of things that um, influenced who I am and why race became important to me. Um, and so more recently, I've been starting to read more and even write a little bit more about it. Yeah. Wow, that's a rich history and journey. Yeah, I mean, I didn't expect to talk about um, sort of that comparison of Bartinieff and BMC, but I think since so many dance therapists in particular and other people doing somatic psychology uh, and somatic therapy, which I haven't finished, is basically a third strand. That, um, <clears throat> when I wrote this book, I felt the need to kind of parse out the different types of somatics. So uh, somatic movement are the ones that really teach, you know, there's hands-on work, they teach movement repatterning or the idea that <clears throat> you need to change your habits of movement in order to change your habits of mind or in order to relieve yourself of pain. Or So it's really needs to get into your movement practice. Um, whereas there are somatic body work that might have a movement component, but they're really focusing on table work and, and deep healing and perhaps a more relaxed state. And then there's somatic psychology and somatic psychology is so important for many, many reasons. But one in particular is it brought this work into the academy. Dance um, departments are another place that somatic work has really come into to academics. But um, somatic psychology has been really an important proponent of legitimizing somatic thinking in a world that needs research to really feel like something's real. So, and then of course, the other reason somatic psychology is important because psychology without the body, we all would agree as dance uh, people, whether it's dance movement therapists or um, using dance from a somatic perspective um, is so critical uh, to our well-being. You know, movement, you can't ignore the body. So, right. so um, can you give us a few highlights of like where does race and somatics intersect? What's important about involving somatics in order to, I mean, what are your, what are your goals with that? Well, my first one is to just really recognize um, how white the somatic field is. And I would say that's pretty much true of dance movement therapy too. And why, what's going on here. So it's just a question. I mean, I, in my book, I, I talk about access. And that was an article I wrote in 2000, actually, even before the global somatics. I wrote an article for the joint uh, conference uh, with ADTA and dance therapy is, uh, is Meta may not have been, yeah, I think they might've been, but anyway, the Laban Institute was there. I believe that it was uh, NDEO, the National Dance Education Organization. So it was this big, wonderful combined conference, I believe CORD and dance history people were there. And I did one called Access to Somatics. And it was just talking about who has access to a clean floor? Because somatics usually involves getting down on the floor. Who has access to quiet? Because quiet is needed to, I mean, you don't have to have it, but it makes it so much easier to feel your internal proprioception if you're not busy being overstimulated by external extraception. Um, and, and then just that these course of studies are expensive. So 
a lot of this comes down to economics. And so, again, when we're talking about kind of forced poverty of a huge portion of our American population, people of color, be it of any um, race, really, but, but you could be considered white but have darker skin and be prejud and prejudiced against. And then obviously, if you truly are a Negroid race, you're severely um, oppressed, is the word I was looking for, truly dealing with systemic oppression. So this kind of um, wondering, I think, begins there around the intersectionality of economics and race in our culture. But it could be asked from another perspective, and that's the one I've been asking more recently, which is maybe somatics is not the way for different people coming out of different experiences. And um, most recently, and I write about this in this little article on intersectionality uh, that's being published by Tarka, an online journal, um, that a colleague of mine was questioning one of my processes for helping people kind of reestablish center, if you will, if they're um, feeling not necessarily in pain, but just out of sorts with themselves. Let's be as vague as that. So I made up this process that I actually wrote originally. Uh, I designed this curricula originally for yoga teachers. I was trying to explain somatics to the yoga community. And I called it waking up to self. This idea of selfhood, I think, is very strong in the yoga community. And um, so part of somatics is this idea of really waking up the body, not just using it, not just putting it in places, maybe not even just, I'm going to answer and then hang up. Uh, and then, uh, so moving beyond the utilitarian, maybe even beyond the spiritual, where you're feeling your, your connection with the universe through the body, but actually staying in the body and feeling the body for the body's sake. So one of the things, and I think it comes from my comfort with dance movement therapy and my own practice of authentic movement for over, I started we're talking about 45 years I've been practicing authentic movement. Um, the idea that we should just express, just get whatever it is out there, like create a safe space and just get people to express. Then find the grounding to support the expression. So what is it that allows, and, and <laughs> I was just explaining this to an 80 year old the other day and I said, uh, grounding doesn't mean, you know, not being able to go out of your room because you were, you know, a teenager that did something wrong. Grounding means feeling your feet, finding your breath support, finding maybe things that are evocative of your early attachment um, experience, hopefully a positive one of just feeling comforted and cared for. So there are different ways to ground, but the physical grounding is really breath and contact of the skin with some surface of support. And that could be evocative of the in utero support, for instance, just being over a big ball. Um, being kind of like the uterine environment. So that's grounding. So we've got expression, E, grounding, G. And then I said, once you've kind of gotten your yayas out and you're expressing, and then you ground your own body, you can begin then to find out and answer the question, what it is, what is it that I want? 
And I call that integrity or integrating integrity. It's like, well, why are you in this state? So in particular, if it's anger, let's say, you know, you need to just maybe get that anger out, then ground yourself to recenter. And then what is it that I want here? Why am I angry? And then finally, that's the I, so E-G-I, and then C is now communicated in this grounded state with a clear sense of your expression. You don't have to diminish the anger. You just know you're angry, but you don't have to express it anymore. But find a way to find out what you want to do with that anger, what you want from the initial situation that caused the anger, and then communicate it. So I call that model EGIC. So waking up to self involves EGIC. So I'm telling this to a friend of mine, and she's a woman of color, and she's saying, you know, I think I'd do it differently. I think I'd have the grounding even before the expression. And so we talked about it some, and, you know, we're, we're not sure. Again, there's just a lot of questions. But if you're coming from an experience of a lot of oppression, it may never feel safe. I said, create that safe space to just express. And it also may not feel like it's connecting you with that integrity that I was talking about, that want. Like, first, calm down. So that was a really juicy conversation for me. And, um, you know, I'm still going to have the Egypt model, but there could be, I love Irmgard's sentence. It's on, like, page 21 or somewhere between page 19 and 21 of her book, uh, her chapter on the body architecture. She says, preparation initiation and spatial intention determine the course of an action. So what I'm hearing from my friend is, oh, I need to be a little more prepared for this. I need to be grounded. Then my initiation, you know, can come from the right source. And then my intention may be clear. So I always, you know, I often go back to just that premise of what makes for clear action from Ermgard Bartinius. Um, philosophy. So I guess to recap, what I'm saying is, I don't know what's going on with race and somatics, but I certainly know that both have to do with the body. The race has to do with skin and certain features of the body. And because of that bodily um, depiction and then interpretation and perception, all sorts of social, cultural, psychological um, premises and behaviors result. And somatics is, is a field for unpacking that, for saying what's going on in the body and how does it feel? And so one of the things I, I like to write about is being influenced by the writing of Robin DiAngelo in her book, White Fragility. For those of us who are white, recognizing the difference between the privilege of whiteness allowing us to basically be very comfortable in our own skin. Whereas the oppressive state of being a person of color is that there are places where you can feel really comfortable in your own skin, but there are a lot of places when the dominant culture is just doing its thing with all kinds of, and you know, I include myself in this, unintended racism or just racism that's been so enculturated that it's just showing up even in intentional behaviors so with that it's like 
the key thing I'm espousing right now is that therapists, educators, the people who have been given the privilege of leadership in our culture could at least become more aware of our own ease into comfort, how easy it is to just be comfortable and to become more aware of how not comfortable so many experiences are for the people that we love even and the people that we're working with or the people we say we're, she does a whole thing on how people say, you know, they, they've got black friends, but really, you know, that might be someone they see twice a year. So it's like, a, it's like cool to have a black friend rather than, you know, do you really have a friend that calls you to task? And have you thanked them lately for calling you to task in your own racism? Um, so I think our whole field just needs a big, deep look at that, especially with the power dynamics that we have as as leaders as educators and as therapists yeah yeah i agree and i'm wondering you know before we wrap up here how do you recommend or encourage that we start doing this in very practical ways perhaps in our sessions or for those of us like me who are more influential on social media how do we how do we start mm. Great. Well, I do highly recommend reading White Fragility. I mean, just everybody should read it. I also feel absolutely standard reading. Unfortunately, it's 800 pages, but it reads really easily, even though it's hard to read because the stories are hard, is the book by uh, Isabel Wilkerson. She's an anthropologist and a New York Times writer, African-American woman who has written the book, The Warmth of Other Suns, S-U-N-S. And it's basically on the Great Migration. So how with the Jim Crow period, after Reconstruction was so in a way positive with so many African-Americans coming into the Senate and into different political positions, the reaction of the whites in that area to just tear that down and break it up. And the North not really helping a whole lot. Lots of compromise was happening. But one thing that did happen was Blacks needed to get out of that oppressive um, experience. And so when I do this, I'm showing uh, the folks from Louisiana, Mississippi heading to California, and then other folks from um, Alabama and the more central quarter of the South going up to Chicago and then the Eastern Corridor coming up Florida, South Carolina, Georgia, and the Carolinas going up to, um, to New York and Washington uh, up into the Northern States. And so she describes families that went through that and what they went through in the South and then what they went through in these other places. I mean, to hear that like in Oregon, no one, no black person was allowed to sleep in that state. You had to just pass through. Um, and, and it goes on and on. And, and to see the movies that are out, there are so many important movies that are telling uh, these stories. And, and then I also really was moved by this book. I just picked it up in the airport. I was just like, okay, I'm really interested in how to deal with oppression and what's going on in our world. And so much is hate crime. So here's this book saying rising out of hatred. And it was written by Ellie Saslow and turns out, or Eli, um, it turns out he was helping write for this person, Derek Black. 
And Derek Black was in line to take over for David Duke as the Grand Wizard. And everybody should just read his biography because there's a lot to learn there. And um, there's actually a message of hope in there. I'm not gonna tell the story because everybody should just read it and learn it. Um, and so white fragility, rising out of hatred. Um, I mean, in my own book, I, we don't tackle racism per se, but there are two sections. There's one that is on the, the global roots of somatics and looking at Asian and African influences. And then there's another, two other sections that could be helpful. One is called Conscious Action and Social Change, the Roots of Social Somatics. And so it looks at isms in general. And then um, out of that also is another section on environmental activism and, and, and even whether there's spirituality and how that fits in. So I've actually, as I said, written an article on intersectionality and, and it centers on race and it tells this story that I just shared with you all, plus many other kind of ideas. It's kind of uh, a short version of the white fragility article, but this main idea of being dealing with comfort. So that would be the other takeaway. So there are books to read, there are films to see, but then there's also just checking in with helping, for instance, a person of color feel more comfortable in an environment. How can you go out of your way to be a gracious host? You know, and, and without doing it in an obsequious way, but just, you know, finding out, are you cool? You're doing good? Would you like to sit with us? You know, that kind of thing. And then also respecting when people don't want to because, and not taking it personally, that's white fragility. Oh, I was nice and they didn't want it. Well, you know, if they don't need it, then don't, think, you know, don't give yourself extra kudos for being so nice. It's not about that. This is about really just equalizing, not like getting points. So um, those are some of the concrete things. There are many more that I think uh, maybe that's the final third takeaway is start to sit with other people and talk. Other white people to recognize our own white supremacy, our own racism. One of the points that Robin D'Angelo makes is that we tend to say, oh, racist, those people are mean and nasty and horrible, rather than, no, we all live in a racist culture. And every time we don't do something to break it down, we are colluding with racism. So we are racist. So we just have to recognize our own racism and then work to dismantle it in any way we can. In terms of social media, I think again, sharing resources, but then also you know, asking provocative questions. What are we doing? Um, I, because of the book, not addressing race directly, one of my friends of color was the uh, host in, in a book talk for me. And afterwards we talked about how they go and she goes, you know, and I said, what did we not talk about? Or she said it. And, and, and um, we, we said, we didn't really talk about race. And so I did hold two so far, maybe three panels on um, gathering people of color who were involved with somatics to talk about how they came into somatics, why it was useful for them, and then what their bodily experiences are of being uh, treated with racism, living in a racist culture. And those will be coming out eventually. They, they were videotaped, they need to be edited and worked on. But I also wanna do it very mindfully with the people that were involved. 
Um, but I will share the name of Kent Alexander because he's just a great Facebook presence. So if you're on Facebook, he's constantly bringing up uh, ways that racism is just permeating in our culture. And then another uh, group of dancers, I say group, they're twins, the Wonder Twins. So Bobby McLean and Billy McLean also have posts all the time about what's going on. So just to see and hear the stories that we might not be getting in the media uh, is a way for social media to pick up and share. Sounds good. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Yeah, that was super helpful. And um, you have, we'll have your articles pasted or accessible through the, the episode notes. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. Yes. People should know I, I have a website that is pretty up to date. You know, it needs updating more often, but drmarthaeddy.com is like an index page to all my different projects. So you'll see Moving for Life there, which is an exercise and dance program for people with going through cancer, or now we do it for all older, older adults that just want to get moving. And then um, Dynamic Embodiment has more about how to train in that, but also the Body Mind Dancing class schedule around, around the city and hopefully more places. And I just want to say for any listeners that might be in Europe or um, going there, um, I'll be teaching in Ireland for a week, uh, July 8th through the 12th. And then there's going to be a one day symposium on the 13th. So uh, if you're coming through that, there's some drop-in classes as well as the whole week. And so those kind of things are on the calendar at drmarthaeddy.com. And I will, right now there's not a literature section on that website, but the dynamic embodiment has an article section and my wellness CKE, which is my work in the public schools and with children around bullying and embodying peace. Um, there are lots of resources. Thanks so much, Martha. So much to explore, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, well, it'd be yeah. great to, it was really nice talking to you. And yes, I want to know more about how your um, resources show up. So I'll, I'll check that out too. So what to send you. Great. All right. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ciao. <laughs> Bye. Bye.